All right, guys. Hey, go ahead. Grab a seat. Grab your Bible. Find your way to uh, Daniel chapter 6. We're going to continue this study through this great Old Testament book of Daniel today. Um, if you are newer, so Jared Cole and his family uh, moved to Madison about three or four months ago. And Jared has, has come in and he's, his official role is a church planning candidate. That our, our aspiration and the thing that we're praying towards is that God would allow us to just be a mother church, sending out a bunch of babies that we call church, plant and church plants. And Lord willing, in the next two to three years, we're going to be sending out Jared with a team of people, hopefully some of you and, and college students and people all around the country from our network to go to Milwaukee to start a new church in, in Salt Company there at UWM and Marquette. But Jared has come in and he's kind of just been a huge blessing to our church family. He's been giving leadership to Docs and Men, but also really involved with our local missions work with just teaming up with Lincoln Elementary and being involved in the schools. And he's just an awesome man, but he's also gonna teach us this morning from Daniel chapter six. So give it up for Jared Cole. Jackson, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good, good, good. It still blows my mind every time Rob introduces me as the church plant candidate, like, we can go plant a church. <laughs> it's insane, right? But, but every time he brings it up too, I, he always says, like, y'all got to feel some kind of pressure too, right? Because y'all listen and he's like, there's some people in here who might go, we're building a team and you might be on it. So be praying about that, okay? In a couple of years, I might be calling y'all talking about, hey, let's go, let's go and do this thing. Um, like Rob said, my name is Jared. Uh, my family and I, we've only been here for three months, right? Uh, but we're really loving it here. We're really excited. We come with a family of six, uh, four kids in tow. Uh, lively, lively household. Um, but before we get going, I want to invite you guys to be praying for something with me. Next weekend, um, Rob gave a description of what I kind of do here on staff. Another thing that I didn't quite mention was our work with the college students. We have some college students in the building today, and, and next weekend, we're actually having our fall retreat. And so I get to join Rudy Hartman, Molly Hartman, uh, Katie, and Nicole, and we get to go out to Green Lake and do this three-day retreat uh, with these college students. We're going to have several college students there. So I want to invite you guys to be praying with us, man, that we really just have a time full with the Holy Spirit. Be praying for the time that we have there. Be praying for the conversations that go on there. Be praying for safety, safety with travel. Be praying for fun, right? But be praying, most importantly, that some people will impact or the Spirit will impact some people so that they will have a life-changing work done in them. Be praying that some people will come to know Jesus. Jesus will do a saving work in somebody's life on that retreat. And so if you do so inclined, please be praying with me this week as we head into Friday, uh, as we'll be out there doing this retreat. Okay, so let's get to the message. If you guys have been coming to the docs over the last several weeks, we've been in this series in Daniel, and I'm going to be in Daniel chapter 6 today. Uh, but first, let me catch us up, okay? We're coming into chapter 6, and Babylon has fallen. In chapter 2, Daniel interprets one of King Nebuchadnezzar's dreams about a statue with a golden head, a chest and arms of silver, middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. And in chapter 6, we jump back in with Daniel in a place where the golden head of that statue has been knocked off, leaving what? 
the silver chest and the arms at the top resembling the Medes and the Persians. We saw this last week in chapter 5 when Belshazzar was compromised and killed at his own party and Darius the Mede took over. And I know it can be kind of confusing, right? Like Babylon fell. Are they still in Babylon? To sum it up in short, yes, they're still in Babylon. The same mentality, the same human nature. It's a different government. But yes, it's still Babylon. And while in Babylon, this theme that keeps popping up is that God is faithful. And faith allows us to be faithful to our faithful God. And you hear that description and you hear a lot of faith words in there. I'd say it a thousand more times if I could. Faith just rings through the book of Daniel. But isn't that this first five chapters in a nutshell? You see, we've seen God show up in amazing ways for and through Daniel and his friends. And today, this story will be no different. What we're going to mostly see today is really just two main characters and two different responses under pressure. One that has self at the center and one that has God at the center. And as we look at one of the most popular stories in Scripture, Daniel and the lion's den, we will see Daniel model the most definitive mark of a life devoted to God which is prayer. If you're a Christian, you've probably heard this story about a million times. If you're not a Christian, you've probably heard this story about a million times as well. It's that popular of a story. But I'm hoping today we're able to see and engage with it in a new and a fresh way. You guys with me? Let's look at verse 1 in Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. I want to pause right here. As King Darius was coming into reign, one of his first responsibilities was to reorganize the newly conquered kingdom of Babylon. He appointed 120 satraps to rule over the kingdom of Babylon and put them under three administrators, one of whom was Daniel. You see, the satraps were responsible to the three administrators, possibly 40 per, so that the king was greatly aided in his administrative responsibilities. See, Daniel was an exceptional administrator, partly because of his extensive experience under Nebuchadnezzar for about 39 years. So the king planned to make Daniel responsible for the administration of the entire kingdom. And so here we have Daniel. Once a young Hebrew boy, and now an 81-year-old Hebrew man, and he's second in command in this foreign kingdom, in the known world, the greatest kingdom to ever be. But for all intents and purposes, it's clear that Daniel, even in his high place of prestige, felt left out and alone. Think about it. Daniel's entire nation was captured and held in Babylon, and here he found himself in this crazy predicament, torn between a world of royalty and a world of captivity. He doesn't quite fit in anywhere, does he? He's different from everyone else that he works with, not only morally, but culturally and socially and spiritually. He doesn't look like them, he doesn't act like them, he doesn't talk like them, and yet he's the one that receives the most favor. If you ask me, not a great combination for workplace morale. 
You see, I think we can grow in spiritual apathy when we read about these rags-to-riches stories like Daniel. See, Joseph is another one in Genesis where we see faithful people who represent God be placed in the high powers of authority in the ruling nations. And in our minds, having that kind of power, having that kind of prestige and all the benefits that come with it is as good as it gets. You know, I think of that question you were asked when you were a kid. What do you want to be when you grow up? You know, I had a chance this past week uh, to walk into Lincoln Elementary School and uh, I'm going to be doing some volunteering there here in the coming weeks. And the kids see me. And the first thing they say, yo, is that LeBron James? <laughs> <laughs> I walked into one room and one of the kids looked at me and says, you look like LeBron James mixed with Kevin Hart. <laughs> and I was like, wait, who, what? I, I, I didn't, I didn't quite get it. But I quickly understood that in their little minds, they are always inconsistently thinking about people they know, looking at people in representative places, and trying to figure out who they like, who they want to be like, and who they want to be when they grow up. Now, when I was growing up, it was a little more simple, right? Like, I want to be an astronaut, I want to be a doctor, you know, something like that. Now it's like, well, I want to be like, a professional basketball player that has all the rings and all this kind of stuff, and I want to be the most funniest comedian ever, ever to live, right? All this kind of stuff. But as I remember, the, the number one thing that we used to say as kids when we were growing up, who we wanted to be, was we wanted to be president. You guys might remember this. Sometimes the answer was even presumed, and the question came like this. It was often a writing prompt. If you were president, what is the first thing that you would do? You see, we fantasize about having this kind of control. So when we see Daniel here, we hold him in the high esteem. But what we don't think about is the pressure from the local representatives, the other 120 satraps and two other officials who hated Daniel, not to mention the pressure from his own people who would be concerned about him becoming a sellout. His high position and favor didn't come only because he was a model citizen. It came because of his gifts. Remember from chapter 1, Dale and his boys, they didn't earn this spot. They weren't Babylonian. They weren't even intended for the Babylonian empire. They didn't endure the infant Babylonian rituals. They were from the outside. And yet they were identified and chosen. See, we think the king was being nice because of Daniel's demeanor, but no, Daniel was being used because of his gifts. And as Daniel's co-workers saw him being used and being given favor, they grew in jealousy. Verse 4 says that they began to plot against him. Can you imagine this? These are the people that Daniel is sitting in the same court with. They were in meetings together. They were problem solving. They were serving. And yet these are the ones who are seeking Daniel's demise. They were, finding, they were trying to find a chink in his armor, however small, so that they could justify their evil. They're thinking that maybe he has lied about his work. Maybe he's leaked some confidential intel, or maybe he had a sketchy Twitter history and they wanted to sting him for that. They were looking for any and all skeletons in his closet they could find, but when they sifted and they searched Daniel, 
and they sifted and they searched his life, they couldn't find any charge to bring against him. See, their desperation came up short. They were willing to find anything to taint Daniel's character and legacy, even if it meant getting him killed. But here's our hook that's been bleeding through the whole book of Daniel. Daniel was faithful. Look at verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, all agreed that king should establish an, or- an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed in the document and the injunction. I'm going to pause right here and take a look at this. So think about King Darius. You can read the text right here, and it's clear that he's being had. Some people are coming to him, and they're trying to get him to do something that, that he doesn't necessarily want to do. And in my mind, I kind of want to give Darius a pass here. He didn't want to send Daniel to the lion's den. He was tricked by the fast talk of the people that he did life with. He didn't know what his employees had in mind. They didn't know that they were conniving against Daniel. They didn't know that they wanted him to get tossed into the lion's den. But then again, I think he doesn't get a pass. I mean, he already had everything. For King Darius, a simple no would have stopped his friend Daniel from being tossed into the lion's den. Yes, Darius was deceived, but it was his willingness to be deceived that I believe revealed something in him, right? Darius' favorable response to enact this decree is just an outward expression of something that's in his heart. And I think that thing in his heart is namely greed. And we get this, don't we, right? Having a lot of one thing, over-consuming it, and then reaping the negative ramifications of it. For some of us, it's, it's food. We can see it with food, Right? Like you're sitting down, you have a great meal, and you've eaten to your heart's content, your stomach's full, your belly's popping, you can't button that top button no more, right? And you're sitting at the table, and somebody comes in and they say, hey, do you want some dessert? <laughs> you raise your hand and say, yeah, I want some dessert. Some of y'all don't have that problem. I have that problem. <laughs> if you're going to come to my house, and we're going to eat some food, you got some dessert, and you're going to put some, like, peach cobbler, some you know, banana pudding in front of me, I- I'm definitely eating that. Whatever it is for you. If it's not food for you, it might be clothes, right? You've got a closet full of clothes. You've got drawers full of clothes. You've got more shoes than you can even count. But we've all got email, and we're subscribed to our favorite newsletters. And some of our favorite newsletters are our favorite stores, and our stores send emails to us. And when that, when that, when that banner comes up and it says 40% off <laughs> sale, what do you do? You go straight to the store, you look for what you want, you toss it in the court, three, $300 later, you press buy. <laughs> and now you got to tell your spouse, right? Yo, know, I bought some clothes. I spent $300, but it's okay, it was a 40% off sale. <laughs> now, now you're left with not only an angry spouse, but now buyer's remorse, <laughs> you know? Or what about your job? There's a promotion or a business opportunity available to you. You have a great job. You're making great money. You're doing, you're doing amazing things. But then the lure 
of something new. The lure of a promotion comes for you. Not that it's bad in and of itself, but as you're thinking about it and you're counting the cost, you start to see that it's actually going to start infringing on the time that you can be spending with your family. You see that it's going to start infringing on your priorities. You see that it will start asking you to compromise your commitments to the body of Christ. And yet you do it anyway. Yes, you may end up with a few more dollars in your pocket, but at what cost? A rocky marriage? Spiteful children? A dry faith life? See, it's easy to look here at King Darius and see his greed and say, that will never be me. But if we're honest, we have the tendency and ability to be just as prideful and greedy, whether it's with your money or your time or your reputation or energy. Pride and greed are blinding. See, the greed that blinded King Darius is the same greed that blinded his employees. Why? Because when greed defines your leadership, then greed will also define your culture. The only reason this trick worked is because King Darius' people held a mirror up to him and said, yo, doesn't this look good? And like many of us would, he took the bait. It's deception. And church, we need to know that deception isn't just the tactic of Darius' people, but this is also the most consistent tactic of the spirit of Babylon. See, there's this known parable about wolf hunters in Alaska. These hunters in Alaska, they, they hunt these wolves. And what they do is they'll take a knife and they'll dip it into this tub of blood. And then they'll freeze that knife until the blood turns to ice. They'll take it out of the freezer, they'll put it back in the blood and put it back in the freezer and freeze it again. And they'll do this consistently time after time after time until it creates this, this type of blood popsicle. And what they'll do, they'll take the knife outside, they'll fasten it to a pole, and this smell of blood will fill the air, and the wolves get hungry, and they, and they smell this blood. So what do they do? They run to the knife, and they start going after the knife. And as they're going at it at first, it's great, it's good. It feels like a good, nourishing meal. But they don't know that they're being deceived. And lo and behold, as they get down to the bottom of that, of that blood popsicle, they get to the blade of the knife, but by then their face and their mouth is so numb by now that they can't tell the difference between the blood that was on the ice and the blood that is coming from their mouth, and they end up dying from self-inflicted wounds. You see, the greatest weapon that the enemy has against us is ourselves. He will play on our human emotion and twist our wants and desires that may not even be bad things, but he manipulates them and makes them seem like everything. And if it appears to be everything to us, then we'll bite. And when we bite, it will be too late because when we're done chewing, we'll realize that we weren't actually winning. We were self-inflicted. This is why when we venture too far down media trails or we hop on YouTube and watch whatever videos we like to feed our curiosity, the ones that we think best represents us, we often resurface feeling like we had just spent so much time in a hole that we never even really wanted to be in in the first place. Deception is powerful. Listen, Darius knew this. Darius felt this. Look at verse 12. His employers come near, and they talk about the injunction, and they come to the king, 
And they say, King, didn't you make this injunction about people who worship? They can't worship anybody else for the next 30 days. And the king was like, oh, yes, I made that injunction, and it still stands. And then they answered him, and they said before the king, well, it's Daniel. Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, the king knows who Daniel is. They don't got to do all that. Pays no attention to you, O king or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And then the king, when he heard these words, he was what? He was much distressed. And he set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that this is the law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. Do you see this? It's too late. Darius realizes what he has done, and he's freaking out trying to fix it, but he can't, right? The law, the own law that he put in place now holds the law that he just created, and it doesn't allow for him to usurp the law. He can't veto it. Greed doesn't care about your good intentions. It will always overpromise and underdeliver. See, when Darius was presented with an opportunity to show integrity, he compromised. He chose self and greed instead. But Daniel was also presented with an opportunity. Let's see what he does. Come back up to verse 10 with me. Look at this. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. I want you to underline that. And then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. You see this here. When they, when they couldn't find anything wrong with Daniel's ethical practices, they tried to attack his spiritual practices. But Daniel was unbothered by these tight religious restrictions on the kingdom, Right? Maybe he wasn't allowed to pray or honor his God in the Babylonian temple or while he was on his job, or maybe he wasn't allowed to leave his post when there were clearly explicit and unforeseen auto-worship practices being done right before his eyes. Reference back to chapter 5. But Daniel wasn't tripping on none of that because he wasn't overly obsessed with his freedoms. He was more obsessed with his faith. You see, it's easy to want to lash out when it feels like the world is caving in around you, when it feels like your worldview is being torn apart or your comfort is being challenged. The first response we want to have is often to raise our voices and fight. But Daniel didn't have a life marked by fighting, did he? He had a life sustained by prayer. Church, when was the last time you just prayed? Prayer is how you march into battle and march through your battle. What if we were so saturated with the Bible and so consistent with our going to God that when hard things happen and trials come, that our first response, like Daniel, was to pray and to walk in the Spirit? The last thing the enemy wants us to do when we face a tough situation is to go, through, is to, go to the Scripture and to go to God in prayer. So here's a question for you. When you get smacked up by the head by trials, what is the thing that tends to bleed out of you? 
there's often three responses that we can have. I want to run through these really quick. We can either fight, we can flight, or we can freeze. I look around the room, and, and some of us are fighters in the room, right? Circumstances, pressure cooker circumstances, what they do is they, they well up fear in us. They well up anger in us, and we want to retaliate, right? When it feels like the world is crashing down around us, what we want to do is run straight to the battle. We want to raise our voices. We want to bring whatever weapons that we have, and we want to run straight to the tension, draw the line, and start the fight. Another response is flight, right? We can actually leave. We want to create the most distance possible from the situation or from the people. We harbor resentment. We start finger pointing and say, yo, those guys over there, we want to call foul on everybody else and everything else that that doesn't align with our worldview. We want to leave. I don't want to be a part of this anymore. The third thing we can do is freeze. We have apathy. We're indifferent. For some of us, it's hard to get us to feel anything about anything. Right? And if we begin to feel something, the emotion that comes over us isn't anger or fear, but it's this sense of being overwhelmed. And so we freeze. See, when we're faced with trial, we usually bleed one of these, but not Daniel. Let's look at verse 10 again. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, you got to imagine this. He knew the document was signed. He was in the court with these men. No wool was getting pulled over his eyes. Daniel saw the whole thing unfold before him. He knew what was coming. He knew the king was going to sign it. He knew the men were talking. It was right there. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day, and he prayed and gave thanks before his God. How? As he had done previously. Daniel doesn't fight. He doesn't fight and he doesn't freeze, but he remains faithful. If you're a note taker, the main idea of this text is this, the most faithful thing we can do in times of hardship and when we're tempted to compromise our faith is to go to our knees in prayer. Because it's prayer that's the the definitive mark of a faithful Christian. You see, Daniel understood what Paul outlines in Ephesians 6. He talks about the battle in the world. There are things happening around us, but what Paul emphasizes is this, is that the battle that we see is not a battle of flesh and blood, but it's, a, but it's a battle of the powers and principalities in the spiritual realm. And so what does he say in Ephesians chapter 6? He says, we have to fight spirit with spirit. We have to put on not physical armor, but the spiritual armor. He says this in Ephesians 6, verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And here it is, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. My, my. 
in the face of an unjust decree, Daniel continued to do what Daniel had always done. He didn't switch up. He didn't leave. He didn't lash out. Why? Because his peace wasn't anchored in his circumstance. It was anchored to the Father. Daniel shows us that a consistency in spiritual devotion leads to a consistency in circumstantial peace. This means that when we find ourselves tossed to and fro by the wind and the waves of life, our priority shouldn't be to check our surroundings. It should be to check our anchor. See, Daniel is saying if you're starting to feel your peace waver, then pray. If your mind is starting to go to dark places, then pray. If you're feeling attacked by the enemy, if you're feeling attacked by your surroundings, then pray. Daniel does what he has always done because he realizes that God has always been faithful. But even in Daniel's faithfulness, Darius still had to put him in the lion's den. We know the story. We haven't even got there yet. He had to put him in the lion's den. A stone was rolled over the mouth of the den, and it was stamped with the king's seal. And then look what it says here in verse 18. Then the king went to, the, to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. You can literally feel the anxiety leaping off the page as you read this text. The greed that he so sought is still reaping the reward. It's causing war in his mind. It's causing war in his body. So much so that he couldn't even do what kings do. He had to fast. He couldn't take any entertainment. And he couldn't sleep at all. I think this is crazy. Daniel literally got a better night's rest in the midst of lions than the king got in his own bed. Faithfulness may not quiet the storm, but it will quiet your heart in the middle of it. Look at verse 19. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. And the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. What a faithful response. He's a better man than me. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den. And no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. I want to quickly jump to what Darius' response was. Look at this in verse 24. The king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. The accusers had persuaded Darius to sign a decree that was intended to kill Daniel, but ironically, they could not persuade the king not to kill them. A little over the top, don't you think? 
But this was law under the Persian Empire. And it was not for, nor did it please God. I don't want us to get it confused. This was not ordained by God. A quick recap of where we are already. The greedy king gets tricked. The faithful Daniel gets snitched on. The greedy king has to punish Daniel. And faithful Daniel gets tossed into the lion's den. And what happens? His life is spared. So here's what I want us to know today, church. We are still living in Babylon. Don't hear me say, like, when I say this, we're not against the world. We're not against the city of Madison. No, we are actually for the city. And believe it or not, there are many blessings that come with actually being for the city. We get to experience the glory of God showing up to help us. And we get to experience the joy of seeing people meet and know Jesus. And we begin to realize just how great heaven will be. These are all blessings. We get to see that this isn't our home and we're not quite home yet. But like Daniel, we are still called to model both faithfulness to God and honor to the emperor. But don't forget, we are still in exile. We're still in Babylon. See, 1 Peter 5 tells us this, that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And then he goes on to say to resist him, firm in the faith. So I have a question for us. How do we resist the forces of Babylon? How do we resist the lion of Babylon? Three things. Submit yourselves to the word of God. Commit yourselves to prayer and earnestly seek the power of the Spirit. Submit yourself to the Word of God. Commit yourself to prayer and earnestly seek the power of the Spirit. Yo, and we can see these evident in Daniel's life. He was committed to the Word, he was a prophet himself. The Word of God was literally on his lips. He committed himself to prayer. You can see in this narrative, he did what he had always done. He prayed three times a day to his God facing Jerusalem, which means what? He had been doing this every single day since he had stepped foot in Babylon. He was committed to prayer. He earnestly sought the power of the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord was on this man. And if you're new to the faith and you're thinking, well, those don't really sound like weapons to fight off anybody, let me assure you. They're the only weapons that the enemy responds to. We need to pick up the Bible. We need to get on our knees and we need to cry out for the spirit to fill us to withstand the attack of the enemy. Why? Because we will for sure face the enemy. See, God is not usually one to walk us around attacks or hardships, but he is faithful and he walks with us in them. I think this message of Daniel 6 shows us this. But also as I look at this chapter in Daniel, there's another question that tends to pop up in my mind as I read the text. Maybe you thought about this too, but what if the lion devoured Daniel? You ever thought about this before? What if the lion devoured Daniel? Would God still be faithful if the lion had devoured Daniel? You see, many of us try to avoid the lion's den so much because we have more fear of the lion than we have faith in God. 
So much of our lives lived as Christians can be lived in a way that wants to tiptoe around tragedy and hardship, that wants to tiptoe around sin. We want to live in a world where the lion isn't even really a real threat. We think we can tame it. We think we can keep it at bay, but no. Rest be assured that the lion is real and the lion is active and the lion bites. The lion's den isn't only a moment for Daniel, but it's an illustration of his entire life in Babylon in the den of a lion, but covered by the Holy Spirit. And likewise, Christian, this is what is true about you. Jesus says that in this life, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. So what does this mean? It means that in this life, the lion real proud He will pose a threat. He will bite. He will even kill. But the good news of the gospel is that the king of the universe has the power, even in death, to render him useless. Non-believers, if you've never heard the gospel before, even if you believe and you need a, a fresh reminder of what the gospel is, here it is. Listen, the gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and through his burial his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, death no longer has the last say. You see, the lion of Babylon may pose a real threat, but he is no match for the lion of Judah. I'm almost done. Look at verse 25 with me. The king Darius wrote to all the peoples and nations and languages that dwell on the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Listen to this profession of King Darius. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and in earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Verse 28, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. See, I don't know the state of Darius' soul, but I do love this part in the text. Have you noticed throughout these six chapters in Daniel, Daniel's faithfulness has been turning heads the entire time. The result of Daniel's faithfulness has consistently been that people want to get next to him. Kings repent of their sin. Kings make sweeping changes to the way they walk, the way they talk, the way they govern on account of him. And the Cyrus that's named here is the same Cyrus mentioned in the book of Ezra. He's the king through which the prophecy from Jeremiah 29 and Jeremiah 25 would be fulfilled. On account of Daniel's faithfulness, listen to this decree made by Cyrus as recorded in the book of Ezra. Ezra, verse 1, chapter 1 says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, 
whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who was in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, along with the free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Daniel's faithfulness in the lion's den of Babylon turns that place into a place of worship. See, Cyrus becomes a tool in the hands of a God to accomplish God's will. But here's the thing, y'all. The story of Daniel is not about some worldly leaders with fickle hearts or a man that receives political favor, but the story of an able and faithful God who will go to great lengths, in fact, any length, to show his faithfulness to his people. The life of Daniel, yes, it does stand as a worthy testimony in and of itself, but it also points to an even greater testimony. What testimony is that? There's another man that will be born. There's another man that will live who would step into exile, who would live a faithful life, who would be betrayed and be tossed into a tomb meant to be his grave and his name is Jesus. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world. You see, Daniel escaped death. But Jesus defeated death. Daniel gained favor with the ruling nation, but Jesus claimed victory over past, present, and future nations. Do you know him? Do you know this Jesus, the God that makes our tragedy into hope, who takes our pain and gives us joy, who enters into exile and bears our cross, who enters into death and gives us life? Do you know this Jesus, the one who defeats death and claims victory and who shuts the mouth of the lion? Y'all, there's nobody like him. There's nobody better. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we love you. As we think about this text, when we look at Daniel, I pray that nobody in this room has the temptation to look at him and compare themselves. That is not the point of this text. Daniel was an example. He was faithful. And Lord, you call us too to faithfulness. And Lord, our faithfulness would not be possible at all if not for your faithfulness to us. So Lord, I pray that you fill us with your spirit. I pray that you allow our hearts to be submitted to the word of God. I pray that you allow our hearts to commit ourselves to prayer. And I pray that you fill us with the desire to eagerly long for the spirit of God. Lord, would you fill this place? Would you touch these people? We pray this in your son Jesus' name.